Well, I think it depends on the time. When I was a teenager, when I was sort of 13, 14, 15, I'd have said it was 10 out of 10. <laughs> mm -hmm. I was one, one of these people who used to very very unfortunate nerd who used to listen to Top of the Pops and to Pick of the Pops. I don't suppose that you, Tom, remember uh, a very ancient DJ uh, called, uh, oh, what's his name? Pick of the Pops, Alan Freeman. And he had his terrible voice. Hello, Pop Pickers. And uh, I was really concerned about what was gonna be number one. <laughs> and because I've always been a bit of a gambler, I used to make a little betting book on it and say, you know, it would be, I don't know. Uh, I think my favorite was when the, the animals came into the charts with the House of the Rising Sun at number 19. And so I made them 50 to one to be number one. And of course they were number one the next week and they were number one for, oh, I don't know, seven weeks or something like that. When was that? I can't remember when that was, but that was uh, maybe 1964. Anyway, uh, so maybe I should have had that as one of the songs. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I was very, very uh, keen on music then. And then as I was a bit more interested in sex, I got slightly less interested in music, although the two do intersect rather well. <laughs> and then, uh, and music was very important to me, I think, in my early 20s, in fact, throughout my 20s. And then it faded out a bit in terms of relative importance. But since I've got a bit older, <laughs> actually, it's got much more important. And the reason it's got much more important, I think, is the availability of, of um, you know, music uh, on, the, on the iPhone or whatever. And since I've got music on my iPhone, uh, I listen to it almost all the time nowadays. Background music or really listen to it. In fact, when I can't go to sleep sometimes, doesn't happen very often in in the early morning say if I wake up at three o'clock and you know still 3 30 I then switch the music on I've got a, a sort of a pretty classical sort of tape so I don't have to listen to any words or anything like that and then then a miracle it I go to sleep and then I wake up when someone wakes me up or the alarm wakes me up oh I have slept after all so music, I'm not saying that music sends me to sleep, but, but it's, uh, it's, it's an important part of my life. Yeah, definitely. it plays a part in a variety of different ways, as, as you've just said there. Where do you tend to listen to music these days on Spotify? Oh, on the, I've got Apple, I think I've got Apple, Apple, music. Yeah, Apple on the iPhone. I think it's amazing. You can put anything, almost anything. I'll tell you one thing that's very frustrating for me, which is Richard Harris, MacArthur Park. I think that's a wonderful, wonderful song you know, cake in the rain and all that sort of stuff. But Apple do not recognise Richard Harris. They've got all kinds of other horrible versions of it. Yeah, uh, so it's anyway, like a hundred different versions of that. It's a song that's been covered. Yeah, there so are, but the original one, the one which was a big hit, was, yeah, but Richard Harris was one. And the funny thing is, he's an actor, of course, and he can't sing. Mind you, Dylan couldn't sing either, but uh, <laughs> that didn't stop him, you know writing some great songs and recording. Well, it's interesting with Dylan that the, the people who covered his song sold more than he did. Uh, but anyway, I've got no Dylan. I've got no Richard Harris. It's really difficult to put it down to five or six songs. Yeah, yeah. It's just, um, a, it's just so, a snapshot. Um, but, but of course, you know, yeah. alongside music, I'm keen to talk to you about a couple of other things as well. But I wanted to start with five songs that you kind of managed to whittle it down to. 
And the first is Path of the Magic Dragon by Peter, Paul and Mary. Why, why did you choose that? I mean, obviously that's such a classic song, but why does it have that significance to you? Well, I think it's, I think it's a message to me about childhood. I mean, I, I I'm, it's not something which, I didn't have a dragon as a pet to, as a child, but I just think the whole idea of magic is very uh, peculiar to childhood. And one of the great tragedies of life today is that we don't really believe in magic. I mean, during the vast majority of human history, people actually believed in some form of magic, whether it was religious or whether it was um, uh, hedonistic or whatever it was, that people did actually believe in magic because they didn't understand the nature of the world. And the very sad thing about science and there's fantastic things about science, and I'm all in favour of science. But the sad thing is that that has driven out most of the magic. And so I, I loved listening to Puff the Magic Dragon because it's so sad and so poignant. Because Puff's have quite happy surviving, but the little boy stops believing in him. And once he stops believing in him, that's it. You know, that's curtains for, for Puff. And that's so sad. And it's a, it's a, I think it's a bit of a parable of what happens to children when they grow up and stop believing in Father Christmas and stop believing in, in dragons. Well, of course, it would be very sad if we didn't stop believing in those things, but, but also it's the end of an era in a way. And the thing about, about young childhood to me is that children take it on trust, whatever they're told. So they have absolute faith in their parents up to a certain age, and this parents are really absolutely terrible. Even if the parents are below average, you know, the, the kid has absolute belief. Didn't you have absolute belief in your parents when you, when you were very young? Oh, and I still So they I trust them and they behave. <laughs> <laughs> and I believe in Father Christmas as well. Uh, well, that's... <laughs> I think we'd better get on with Puff the Magic Dragon, don't you? Can you, can you actually play it or, or am I just talking about it? Oh, no, no, the, the, the podcast, we, we don't tend to play the songs just because of the licensing issues. It is literally just a discussion about, about the music. I know, as, ah, as okay, odd as it sounds. Okay, great, then I can talk more. That's fine. I'm yeah, yeah. I'm talking too much. No, no, you're but not. the other thing about childhood, you know, no, the other thing about childhood is that uh, children are just themselves. You know, they, are, not, they don't put on any front. They don't try and pretend they're someone other than they are. It's hugely embarrassing for their parents on many occasions as a result. But, you know, that's the very sad thing about growing up, that we tend to then not be ourselves. We tend to, you know, be one person with a group of friends, another person with another group of friends. When we're at work, we tend to often, certainly I did in my early career, suppress their personality or adapt their personality and the, the wonderful thing about children is that there's absolutely no difference. What you see is what you get. What you get is what you see. It's, it's basically a, a very, um, it's very authentic. And again, I think that the, the, you know, the danger of the difficulty for many people today is that they're just not comfortable in their own skin. And I'll talk about that a bit later on with some of the other music. But, but um, you know, one of, the, one of the good things about getting older is that uh, I'm not saying I revert to childhood, but, but you know, as you get older, I think it's easier to actually uh, be a little uncompromising and just say, well, this is what I think, you know, yeah. you don't like it, you don't like it. These, you know, these are the people I want to spend time with uh, rather than other people. So, um, why do you think yeah, that is? I think uh, childhood is. Um, 
I think it's a breakdown in trust, probably. I think that we try and present ourselves in a way which will be acceptable to other people sometimes. And it's because we don't trust ourselves and we don't trust other people to react positively to us that we sometimes do that. Whereas, I mean, it's, it's, it's also culturally conditioned. I mean, there are certain countries that you go to where people are naturally very friendly. I mean, I was recently in Barbados, for example, there, and, you know, maybe it's because it's all, you know, nice climate and nice blue sea and all the rest of it, and nice coconuts. But uh, people actually are almost universally friendly. The same is true in Australia, the same is true in New Zealand. Of course, there are thugs and there are fights and there are criminals in, in all of those countries. But the general norm is, is, uh, is very, very outgoing and very friendly. But in certain other countries, it's very reserved. And in some countries, particularly parts of, of America, perhaps you might say nowadays, you know, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of hostility on the streets. And I think, you know, it's much better, obviously, if, if you're in a situation where people accept that most other people are going to be, you know, okay, they're going to be helpful, they're going to be friendly, they're going to be on your side. And that tends to be, a, I think that tends to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. But if you're, you know, if you expect people to be friendly and helpful, they probably are. You know, if you go around with quite a nice genuine smile on your face, uh, life is a lot easier than if you're angry and yeah. uh, basically other people react to that. So I think it's... Um, a lot of it comes from within, really. I think it's uh, adults, actually. Yeah. And I think it's... It's the complexity of modern life. It's, it's actually, you know, life isn't very easy in many cases and people expect it to be easy and, and then they get very disappointed and angry and annoyed when, when it isn't. Well, yeah. <laughs> what do you expect? Well, I think after a while, hopefully it will dawn on most people that life is not easy. Um, the, next, the next track is entitled In My Secret Life by, and it's by Leonard Cohen. Was this, when did Leonard Cohen release this song? Was this Phil Spector produced? I don't know. I don't think it was one of his early ones. I think, I think it was probably about, I don't know, 1980 or something like that. It so happened that I was in Philadelphia in 1974 and met him. Uh, wow. There was something called the um, Jewish Club of the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and I had a Jewish friend and she took me along to, to she said, you know, there's this interesting guy called Leonard Cohen. I heard of Leonard Cohen at that stage. <laughs> and I said, oh, what is it? And she said, well, he's kind of a poet, but he's also kind of a singer and songwriter. And I said, oh, that sounds very interesting. <laughs> so there were about 60 of us in this little room, probably not much bigger than your room. And uh, yeah, and uh, he was he was really wonderful. I mean, he was really terribly, yeah, he was, yeah, he was, I, I, he may have been on something for all I know, but he was very, very uh, funny. And um, it was great to meet him and then start, started to listen to some of his music. But the reason that I, I selected in my secret life is because quite a lot of Leonard Cohen's work, as you know, I'm sure, is sort of about sexuality in one form or another. And some of it's quite dark and some of it's quite sort of, you know, uh, 
I mean, he wasn't gay, but but you know, a lot of it is it sort of crosses over very well for gay people. And one of the things that was most important to me between, I suppose, the ages of 16 and 30 was that I discovered that I was gay. And being gay in a very straight world, you know, I mean, I'm not someone who's ever wanted to be in fashion or wanted to be, you know, in the media or wanted to be in the musical world or, um, you know, basically I've been, I've, I've been in a, you know, pretty straight environments, you know, I've been... Uh, working in business, I've been in business school, and I have uh, more latterly been in management consulting and so on and so forth. And although those are very intelligent realms, and so they're not, you know, necessarily at all bigoted or whatever, it's quite hard to realise today, perhaps, that that during my teens and during my twenties, there was a hell of a lot of prejudice against gay people, and I sort of grappled with that and I I was very careful to present myself as straight. I never said I was straight and people who knew me knew that I, I had a boyfriend and so on and so forth but but you know it was something that I was very conscious that I didn't want to appear in any way camp or I didn't want to appear in any way non-mainstream and it was quite amusing. I remember going to see a headhunter once because at one stage in my late 20s I thought that I'd stopped doing what I was doing, which was a very difficult quantitative um, strategy consulting, we called it, sort of analysis of companies and competitors and so on and so forth. And I thought, well, maybe I, could, I sh should actually think about a rather easier job. And what job could be easier than that of a headhunter of an executive recruitment person whose only job is to interview people and decide which people to put forward to other people who are looking for someone to be chief executive or finance director or creative director or whatever of a reasonably successful company. Um, so there's this company called Egon Zender, which is probably the largest headhunter of its type at the time and also probably today in Europe. It's based in Switzerland. It was founded by a wonderful guy called Egon Zender. And this, um, this uh, company had an office in London, and I was in London at the time. And so uh, I went along and talked to them. And I talked to the second in command of the office. And one of the things that headhunters do, which is quite an interesting thing in a recruitment process, is they take you to lunch or they take you to dinner. And they're not really looking for your table manners, but they're looking for whether you can sustain an interesting conversation with people yeah. that you've never met before. Because one of the most effective ways of assessing someone is not to have it in, in an interview where everyone's used to performing and everyone's sort of the same. You take them to a restaurant and they have to relax a bit. They have to sort of look around at the surroundings, have a look at the other people. They have to assess the, the ambiance. They have to decide what to eat. And they have to eat as well without, without getting food down the front. <laughs> and, you know, they also have to, you know, have a drink or two. And so, you know, that relaxes them. And it's quite easy to go to four or five interviews and put on the front, but it's very yeah. difficult to go to four or five meals with people and do the same thing. Anyway, so this guy and I were, were drinking quite a lot and we you know, had dinner and all the rest. I said, well, you know, what's the secret of being a good headhunter? You know, what, what sort of skills do you have that you can't normally talk about or don't sort of you know, highlight, but which are really important. When you're assessing me, for example, 
you know, what are you looking for? And he said, well, you know, one of them, what, I mean, it's a sense about people, he says, instinct. It's sort of knowing, you know, what sort of people they really are. So for example, you know, you have to know whether someone's a real womanizer or whether they drink too much or whether they're queer. <laughs> and, he, and he said, you know, obviously, if they're queer, we're not going to put forward, put them forward for a job. And I, I, thought, <laughs> I nearly God. burst out laughing. Uh, so he was showing a complete lack of skill in assessing someone who was queer. <laughs> um, and they offered me a job, but I didn't take it. But um, <laughs> but but was was, you know, was it because was not, because of what they said that you didn't take it? Particularly because. No, it wasn't really. It was because I, I thought that it, I thought that I'd get bored by doing it. Uh, actually, I went to see Mr. Egon Sender in in Zurich, and I loved him. I thought he was he was a fantastic guy, and he liked me as well. He offered me a job on the spot, and I very nearly accepted. But I thought, you know, this is this job is not difficult enough. It will it, it will not be too much of a challenge for me. And anyway, I didn't want to eat too much. So that's why I didn't take the job as a headhunter. It wasn't because he, this guy, I thought this guy was a nutcase, basically. Uh, and he was, probably wasn't typical of the other people. But the only reason, Tom, that I mentioned this as, as something uh, worthy of note is that that was when I was almost 30 years old. So, you know, that was, you know, not that long ago. And it was still acceptable to say things like that. And nowadays, we've almost gone to the other extreme, where, where if you don't like people, you know, you might not like Irish people, for example, or you might like not like uh, people who are fat, or you not, might not like people who um, are not well-dressed, or you might not like people who are very arrogant or whatever. You, you're almost afraid to say so. Mm. Um, mm. But Do you think but, that the fight you know, for, for rights um, for gay people, uh, do you think that that fight has, has been won? Or do you think that there's still more to do? Um, do well, like, there's always more to do, but but I mean, you know, in I in in, in I suppose I should caveat that with uh, the fight for rights um, for gay people in, let's say, you know, like the UK. Well, actually, it's illegal in Barbados. Is it? Um, but not but, just but not in force. Two months. Yeah. <laughs> no, not absolutely not enforced. Uh, but you know, but I mean, uh, I mean, they are quite serious about it in places like Uganda and certain other African yeah. countries. Uh, so yes, of course, the battle hasn't been won there. Um, but yes, of course, the battle has been won. I mean, you know, I think it had been won. I think it was won actually by the Labour government in, in the UK of uh, 1997 to 2001. The Tony Tony Blair's first administration when he had. Uh, Mandelson was an openly gay associate, you know, and there was no, you know, no, no one actually worried about that at the time. I remember I, I did do a job in 1996 in the cabinet office, which is sort of the place, the other side of number 10. And mm. I was a, it was a part-time job and it was something which I did pro bono, so I wasn't being paid for it. But I do remember that um, at that time, I had to fill in the Official Secrets Act uh, form, you know, detailing all of the people that, not exactly all the people I'd slept with, but, all, you know, basically everything about me. And I thought, should I put down the fact that I'm gay? And I did. 
uh, because I thought, well, it was okay for Mandelson, it's okay for me. Um, no one raised the slightest eyebrow at that, you know, no one even mentioned it. So, you know, but if that had happened 10 years earlier, I think it would have been a problem. So yes, I think, I think the battle has, you know, battle's been 90%, 95% won. Um, and that's a huge beneficial change. I mean, a lot of people talk mm. about all the bad things that happen nowadays, but, but that's, one, that's one absolutely massive thing for a quite significant segment of the population. And, and if you include the, you know, friends of gay people and parents of gay people and so forth, you know, an awful lot of people. Yeah. It's still true. I do know people still today who haven't told their parents. Uh, and I think that's, I mean, that's, that's probably about, you know, my gay friends, I probably think it's about one in 10. But it's still, you know, it's an indication that it has, the battle hasn't been totally won because gay people are not totally relaxed about revealing it to their parents and of course you know they say well it's an older generation and so on and so forth but do you think it will be the same uh, you know as uh, as generations because i think it's probably very different you know in, in like for example places like schools you know we were talking earlier about how kids are quite kind of forthright and open and you know it, i remember when i was at school it, there was quite a lot of kind of homophobic um, bullying of people. Um, I wonder whether that's the case now in schools. I would, I would have thought due to the way that culture has moved and shifted that that would no longer be the case. And people would, you know, if people were to try and use homophobic slurs and stuff as a means of bullying people, I'd have thought the kids of today would just say, you know, what are you talking about? Just shut up. But I don't know. I guess culture will continue to shift. I've got one gay friend who's 23. I've got one gay friend who's 23 and said that he was bullied at school for being gay. I think children are beasts, actually. I mean, of course, <laughs> angels as well. But but <laughs> I think children are often, you know, extremely cruel and nasty uh, because yeah. they, they haven't been civilised yet. Uh, so, I mean, if it wasn't being gay, it might be being fat or it might be smelling. Or <laughs> yeah. Children... <laughs> Children have an, have an unerring herd instinct for picking on the weakest member of the herd, you know. And uh, yeah, that's that, that's so true. I, I don't think one should read too much into that. I'm sure that the gay bullying still exists, as indeed other forms of bullying still exist, yeah. because that's what children do. But uh, hopefully, it's you know dying out. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 interesting, and and of course, you know. I definitely uh, should have prefaced my question about, you know, do you reckon it's changed in the UK? Because the fact that it's still illegal to be gay in like half the world kind of shows that the fight's not nearly even started. Um, so the, the, the next track is also related uh, to Philadelphia. Well, more related to Philadelphia uh, because it's about Philadelphia. Um, Streets of Philadelphia by Bruce Springsteen, um, which is one of my favorite Springsteen yeah. tracks actually, um, and released, I think in the early nineties. What, why did you choose that and uh, another another link to Philadelphia? Well, one of my claims to fame, which is not real, a real claim to fame, but I, I, I exaggerate a little bit when saying I introduced Bruce Springsteen to Britain. And my justification for saying that is that I had a copy of Born to Run, I think. Uh, was, you know, I, don't, I don't know if that was his first or second album or whatever. But anyway, I... I uh, you know, those were in the days when it was vinyl, 33 and th third things, and you put them in a turntable, you know. And uh, 
So I remember very proudly bringing this sort of, you know, one of the great things about those albums in those days is that they had wonderful covers and designs and the rest of it. So anyway, I brought this thing to England and I waved it around amongst my friends in London and said, have you heard about Bruce Springsteen? And it, it was met with sort of puzzlement. So um, I then got in touch with a friend of mine who was a very good friend of a prominent DJ. I better not mention his name. And uh, this DJ then started playing Springsteen and he played it on Radio One. And then, it, you know, I think it may have been wow. on Radio Caroline initially, my radio station and so on and so forth. And then Bruce Springsteen suddenly took off in England. I'm sure it would have happened anyway. But um, so that's my little boast. That's amazing. That. And Streets of Philadelphia is just, I lived, I lived for two years in Philadelphia when I was at Warden Business School. And it was a very cool place. It was, it was, I liked it a lot. I mean, the climate sucked. You know, it's yeah. far too hot in summer, far too cold in winter. But apart from that, it was a very groovy sort of place. It was a lovely Amazing. place. And, uh, you know, quite, I mean, it had wonderful restaurants. It had quite a substantial Italian population. So it had nice Italian restaurants. Uh, it had a lot of black people and there was sort of, you know, this edgy thing where the business school was about two streets away from a black ghetto. So, you know, there were some interesting places which were sort of, you know, a bit mixed at the time that those, the races didn't mix all that much. In, in all of the gay and the straight clubs in Philadelphia, um, you know, there's a huge mix of people, uh, different nationalities, different colours, different um, people from different classes, uh, you know, people who were crazy, people who were much more straight-laced. And to me, it was, uh, it was great. It was, I never really got into New York. I never really, I always thought New York was a bit intimidating, a bit frightening if you didn't live there and didn't know your way around and all the rest of it. Um, but Philadelphia was perfect. It was, it was, it was safe and it was great fun. So streets of Philadelphia uh, and Springsteen, you know, bring back a lot of very happy memories as far as I'm concerned. Mm, yeah, and, and they will for many people. Philadelphia is such an incredible place. So much great music from Philadelphia as well. All the Philadelphia yeah. soul stuff um, from the 70s. That's some of my favourite music. Yeah. And of course, the stylistic. Of course, we must say Springsteen came from Springsteen came from New Jersey, of course, which was just over the other side of the river. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I'll stretch a point on that. Um, yeah, yeah, of course. We loved his music. Springsteen is not one of Philadelphia's uh, Philadelphia's own, but it is good that he chose to celebrate the great city. Uh, so, um, the Honey Bus I hadn't heard of. Uh, so, who, who are the Honey Bus? <laughs> the Honey Bus produced this song. I think it must have been in the nineteen eighties. Um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful song, Tom. You must get hold of it and listen to it. I have. I've listened I to it on Spotify. Let Maggie go. Yeah, it's a dreamy little song. It's got this tremendous melody and all the rest of it. So, but I'm mentioning it because of Margaret Thatcher, because she <laughs> was the dominant political personality of the 1980s. And I, you know, to say that I was a great fan of hers is not quite correct because I think there was a, you know, there was a bad side to Mrs. Thatcher. But I do remember the Falklands War in 1983 when uh, General Galtieri, the, the uh, Leopoldo Galtieri, the uh, dictator of Argentina, decided to shore up his rather ramshackle regime 
which was a fascist regime, very nasty people, uh, by invading the Falklands, Falkland Islands, the Malvinas, as they, they called it. And one of the things that I've done in the last couple of years is I've written a book called, this is a little plug for my book, uh, Unreasonable Success and How to Achieve It. And um, it's a great book, and it's actually doing, selling quite well, very well. Um, and what yes. I did was, to, if you'll indulge me for a second, is I took 20 people who'd been very successful in the world and changed the world in some way. Some, sometimes there are people that not everyone's heard of, like Bill Bain, who was my old mentor in Bain & Company, and I learned just about most of what I know about business. Bezos, once the richest person in the world, obviously Amazon. Mm. I had also Van Bismarck, who was the most successful statesman in, in Europe in the 19th century, Winston Churchill, you know about. Marie Curie, the woman who invented radium. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, I had to put him in, partly because he's gay, I suspect. Uh, Walt Disney, who I think has just had a huge impact on American world culture. Sure. I remember a Portuguese friend of mine saw a deer and he said, oh, yes, that's a very nice Bambi. <laughs> and I said, no, it's a deer. And he said, yeah, never heard of deer. Bob <laughs> uh, Dylan, uh, Albert was... Einstein, Victor Frankl, he was a guy who Hitler put in, uh, he, was a, he was the third wave of, of psychotherapy after Adler and Freud, and he invented something uh, which you know, it was basically the psychology of meaning. And he was sent to the concentration camps and everything was taken away from him. And he survived by recreating the book that he'd just written in his mind and on scraps of paper and cigarette packs and so wow. forth. Uh, Bruce Henderson, another mentor of mine, founder of the Boston Consulting Group, Steve Jobs, you know about. Uh, John Maynard Keynes, probably the best economist in the 20th century. Vladimir Lenin, who I regard as a very bad person because he murdered tens of millions of people, but hugely successful in the sense that he uh, managed to overthrow uh, the regime and, and he formed the first practical communist party uh, in any country in Russia and made quite a success out of Russia. So he, he managed to take about 2,000 people who were his followers and then rule this country, which had about 100 million people for um, effectively him and his successes between 1917 and 1989 or 19, yeah. So yeah. Madonna, uh, who <laughs> Quite a is just there because she's, yeah, she, <laughs> well, she's hugely, a very, very successful business person. Of but, course. You know, you can't ignore Madonna. She's kind of like, you know, like Mr. Trump would like to be, you know, you just can't ignore her. <laughs> And perhaps now we can ignore him. Uh, and uh, Man Nelson Mandela, someone that I didn't know personally, but I knew a lot of people who were close friends of his. J.K. Rowling, Harry Potter creator, and more recently creator of um, a great uh, detective character. Helena Rubinstein, she invented cosmetics effectively. It didn't exist before her. Uh, uh, Paul of Tarsus, St. Paul to... Christians who changed the Roman Empire, made it Christian. 
probably an improvement. And Margaret Thatcher, who's the last one. The, these 20 people I just selected because I knew something about them, or in some cases I knew them or knew people who knew them. And also there's, there's no question that whether you like them or loathe them, they had changed the world. Yeah. And so what I did was to say, is there any common thread behind these people? And I discovered nine different attributes or strategies or circumstances that they had. I mean, for example, Tom, one of the things that all of these people had was a, a transforming experience, which means that they went into a company or they went into a country or they went into a, a university or whatever, and they came out as completely different people. So, you know, you go in as one person, you come out as another one who was fantastically more effective. And it was quite funny tracing all of the transforming experiences. For Lenin, for example, it was a hanging of his elder brother. Lenin was not interested in politics at all, was a very good student. And then one day, his elder brother, whom he adored, uh, got uh, hanged by the, the Tsarists, by the Russian uh, forces for trying to assassinate one of the Tsars, Alexander III. And, and overnight, Lenin became absolutely full of hatred for the what he called the bourgeoisie, the middle classes, as well as all of the hangers-on of the Tsarist regime. And he devoted his life to trying to get rid of them, and he succeeded. Um, so, you know, that was a transforming experience which lasted for a few hours and also for a lifetime as well. So one of the themes of the book is that if you want to be very successful, it's a good idea to have a transforming experience, even if it's pretty unpleasant at the time. I'm not recommending that you, <laughs> you <laughs> seek your, out unpleasant. Your brother should be hanged by somebody. Yeah. Uh, well, going to the concentration camps, Viktor Frankl was, was an example of that. Um, but it does mean in, in, in business terms for Jeff Bezos, it was actually working for a company called D.E. Shaw and Company, which um, was a quantitative hedge fund. And the guy who ran it was a computer science nut called David Shaw. And he and Bezos together invented the whole blueprint for Amazon. And if he had not been in that company, Bezos would never have founded Amazon. So that was his transforming experience. And what um, happened to the and, other guy? Um, sorry, what happened to? What happened to the other guy? The one who did the blueprint with him? Which guy? I can't, I can't recall his name. You've literally oh, told me well, it. He, he, yeah, David Shaw, David Shaw. Well, he was a boss. He was a boss of this um, quantitative hedge fund. And he continued to run that. And it's now the third largest hedge fund in the world that that uh, does alternative stuff that in other words isn't just yeah. straightforward equities or whatever and he's a multi-multi-billionaire so you know it's not like he um you know failed to be very successful as well he was very generous and it's very interesting because they worked on this together you know they each gave ideas to the project probably david shaw came up with more of the ideas than jeff bezos and and then um david shaw said to jeff go and run this company, create this company for me, you know, within DE Shoring Company. And Jeff said, well, that's all very well, David, but I don't want to do that. I want to do it on my own. And so, you know, David Shaw went, the story goes, that they walked around Central Park for, I don't know, a couple of hours or whatever. David Shaw trying to persuade him to do it within DE Shoring Company. Jeff Bezos saying, no, it needs to be a separate company. Oh, this is what I want to do with my life etc etc and very generously david shaw said okay 
yeah, go and do it. You know, he didn't ask for a share of the company. He didn't, you know, it was just an amazing act of generosity. And, um, and that's what happened. And they're still oh. very good friends today, not surprisingly. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm not surprised at all. Yeah, so he's no longer the richest man, though, Bessos. I mean, he's still pretty rich, but uh, pretty rich. No, I doubt that he's concerned about that. Can you no. imagine trying to spend all that money? <laughs> I mean... Oh, I could. I, I fantasise about it regularly, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> very good. I okay. do, well, I do, you know... You will. The, How are you going to make them... The age-old question, though, I've got to ask you, Richard, however, is, um, well, I mean, it's not an age-old question, but, you know, who is the fairest rich man of them all? Are you a Jeff Bezos fan or are you a greater fan of his rival, Elon? Because it seems like they're rather competitive. Well, I have to be honest with you. Um, I think they're both rather flawed characters, but I think they're both, what they're doing, have done, is fantastic. Uh, each each one's creating what I call a star business, which is the leading business in a very high growth market. And, um, you know, the thing about Amazon was that they said, you know, e-tailing, retailing on the Internet is going to be huge. No one believed that before before Jeff Bezos started. You know, Amazon was the first really, really successful retailer on the Internet. And then... Um, the philosophy which they had, Tom, was they wanted to create not just a company which sold books, but a company which was the every, everything store, is what they say. And they're pretty much doing it. Someone told me the other day that 40% of retail sales in the UK are Amazons. Now, that excludes certain uh, specialist categories like pharmaceuticals and various other things. But of general merchandise, they have 40%, four zero. So unbelievable. And I suppose the next, next nearest nearest company, I don't know who it would be, but it might be, I don't know, one of the supermarkets or hypermarkets, and they would probably have something like 5%. So it is, it is truly unbelievable. And of course, you know, with pandemics and the rest of it, you know, have you looked at Amazon shares? I mean, they just, since 19, since 2000, they just continue going, of course, there are a few wiggles in between. Yeah, but well, the pandemic's added a lot share, of wealth. On, onto Amazon and the pandemic, yeah, I hear, has been yeah. hugely beneficial to billionaires. You know, it's really yes, it has. Yeah, I mean, it's it's rather sad in a way. I mean, sort of, you know, speaking as an aspiring billionaire, it's not that sad. But nevertheless, <laughs> it's uh, you know, what is sad is that the people at the bottom are you know even more at the yeah, bottom. And, it's awful. Uh, you but you there are certain things you just can't you can't fight it. You know, I mean, it's definitely true that it's even without a pandemic, for many categories of goods, it's much easier and cheaper to buy on the internet than it is to trudge out to the high street stores. You know, not many people want to go high, high street shopping, even when, you know, there's no um, disease. So, yeah, yeah, it's something which is just going to go on and on and on. Yeah, society was moving this way anyway. It's just been accelerated. Um, the, your final selection is uh, by Matt Grimsdale, your voice, another track that I hadn't heard, um, which which um, you can listen to on SoundCloud. Called your Someone voice. you've never heard of, Matthew Grimsdale, yeah. 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 Matthew Grimsdale, Your Voice. Um, well, this is this is a very um, personal thing because Matt Grimsdale is, is a very dear friend of mine and he's a singer-songwriter that nobody has heard of. So, uh, and I think he's fantastically talented, uh, both as a singer and, but more particularly perhaps as a songwriter. 
And this particular song, I don't don't know if you've listened to it yet, but if not, you can get it on SoundCloud. It's sort of, you know, it's quite widely available, called Your Voice. And it's a very um it's a slow sort of, you know, cruisy sort of ballady kind of thing. He also does very upbeat stuff, but it's about his father and about the influence that his father had on his life. And um the fact that he's dead doesn't matter. And that's the whole sort of message of the song because mm. you know he still was here hears his voice uh and you know he and also because um matt grimsdale wouldn't have been the person that he is but for his father and um it's a lot it's a lovely lovely slow uh quite sentimental but quite well it's it's got force in it because you can tell the sincerity of the of the writer of the song and singer of the song and so, yeah, if you want, Matt, uh, Matt Grimsdale, as I say, he is not very well known, but uh, perhaps he will be as a result of your programme. Well, hopefully, hopefully we can start um, start spreading the word. Um, although, um, but how, how, how do you know, how do you know, Matt? Or, or, or um, you know, how long has he been yeah, making a personal friend? That's all. A personal friend, yeah. Uh, about, about 10 years. Wow. So he really, he really, I mean, he's, he's written an awful lot of songs. Some people have sung his songs as well. I don't think there's anyone really famous who's done that, but, but you know, he hasn't been very successful so far. And I just think it's, uh, I just think it's something which uh, could be changed. Well, so it I can be changed. Hopefully Matt, this will be a, a, t a tiny, you know, micro step on, 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 the, on the route to uh, Matt discovering a wider yeah. audience. But I mean, God knows it so is a difficult... A difficult industry, the music industry. That is, that is for sure. Um, and a book. Um, do you think it's more? Do I think what? Sorry. Okay. I was going to ask you. Do you think it's more difficult now to be successful, or do you think it was always very difficult to be successful in music? I think it's probably harder to make to to, to make a living, like a small living, from it, to allow you to pursue it full time whilst you aim for superstardom that you may not achieve. Because you can't sell records really anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Just you have to go on the road and do gigs, don't you? Yeah, I mean, um, now with the pandemic, it is literally it, it is literally over. There is there is no industry, yeah. um, and uh, and it you know really just depends on on whether whether the restrictions last. I mean, we've had Chris Whitty saying restrictions will be back next winter. Um, if that if that continues, you know, it's going to be every artist out of business and every management cunt company every, you know the whole industry will be over um if it lasts for too long uh, I, that's what that's what i i think i mean you see all the artists cashing out now like neil young and bob dylan and uh, fleetwood mac they're all selling the rights they're cashing in their pensions i mean their pensions are uh, you know sort of about 400 people's pensions 400 rich people's pensions <laughs> yeah and that's a huge amount of the music that's actually listened to, so uh, yeah. people like Matt Grimsdale don't get much of a cookie. But um, yeah, I mean, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. But I also think that this thing is not going to last forever. No, and you know, things have a bit of springing up again because everyone wants to listen to music. I mean, it is an important part of of a lot of people's lives, and you know, live live gigs are going to come back. And um, yeah, they will. Uh, I have heard. Yeah. I have hope, but it's it's just at the moment it's it's worrying with with no certainty. But I, w w one thing that I wanted to ask you about, um, obviously, obviously you've got 
unreasonable success and how to achieve it out now. Uh, but another one of your books um, that's that's great and uh, you know loved by many and promoted by many that you're well known for is uh, the 80-20 principle. Why did you decide to to write that? And uh, and if I can bore you with asking you to just explain that principle to my audience, um, I would love to because it's it's a principle that I've been fascinated by for ages ever since I read the uh, the Tim Ferriss book when I graduated from uni yeah before our work week which uh, yeah. featured it yeah so here we have the 80-20 principle and that's an American edition and no that was a big fat fat one it's got fatter over time I wrote this book 20 years ago and uh, every 10 years or five years we bring out a new one so this was the 19 sorry 2017 version this book sold over a million copies and it's just amazing so what is wow. the age principle the, the, the idea behind it is that if you look at the whatever determines whatever you want whether it's profit or enjoyment or happiness or um well whatever your aspiration is there are certain causes of that which are much more important than others and what the rule says, it's a principle, not a rule, because it's, um, it's generally true, but it's generally very pervasive as well, is that in general, something like 80% of what you want, it comes from 20% of the causes. So, for example, you know, the clothes we wear, you know, it's nearly always true for everyone that we wear... 20% of our clothes, 80% of the time. Well, yeah, that's not exactly a desirable thing or undesirable thing. It's just a fact. Um, likewise, in business, it's been proven time and time again that 20% uh, of customers give 80% of profits because they tend to be the customers who are bigger or the customers who accept high prices or the customers that are not very easy to serve. And there are a whole pile of other customers that, you know, you'd be better off without them, essentially. Um, and the same is true of products, that 20% of products make 80% of, of profits. And generally, companies don't realize that that's true to the extent that it is true. And therefore, they introduce too many products. And a lot of those products, um, they may cause sales growth, but they don't cause profit growth. But, you know, it also applies in your personal life that if you think about your happiness or the ha amount of happiness that you derive from the course of the day, you would probably discover that a lot of the happiness actually happens in relatively short periods of time. So they might be when you're having a cup of coffee or a drink with your mates. It might be when you're, you know, driving. It might be when you're in a beautiful countryside. It might even be at work when you're doing a very interesting program or something like that. Of course. You don't do it most of the time. It's the thing that gives meaning to, to, to life. And your friends, you know, I, I say to people, well, you know, take a piece of paper and write down uh, the 20 people that you see most. So put them down. So, you know, okay. So you've got these 20 people you see most. Some of them are friends, some of them are workmates, um, some of them might be family, uh, some of them might be neighbours that you see quite a lot because your wife or your husband, you know, wants to talk to the neighbours or whatever. So the people that you spend most of the time with, okay, then then rank them according to how much you enjoy their company and how much, it's a bit crass, but you might say, well, how much you know, how much enjoyment do you get from X, Y, and Z? It's nearly always true that there are very few people that actually you get most of your satisfaction from. But the interesting thing is you don't necessarily spend a lot of time with them. And obviously distance is an issue, particularly mm. nowadays, but whatever. But, you know, 
it's quite a revelation to people sometimes when they just go through a very simple exercise that they're spending time with the wrong people. And particularly if you happen to be, for example, working for a boss that you don't like, then that is almost guaranteed to make you less happy than if you're working for someone that you do like or indeed if you're the boss. So it's, you know, it's that kind of thinking that says, look at your time. You know, what is the 20% of your time that you get most satisfaction from? That gives you 80% of the satisfaction. It might be 30% of the time that gives you 70% of satisfaction or the rest of it. Well, you know, maybe you should be doing more of those things and less of the things that you really don't like doing. Now, of course, we all have to do some things that we don't like doing. But nevertheless, it's quite important because most people just don't stop and think how they're using their time. And they have this idea that we're all very short of time. Well, I don't think we're short of time. I think we've got masses of time. We're awash with time. Uh, because we spend it so badly and if we yeah. actually spent it on the things we that we're really passionate about yeah exactly then that would be that would be great but how, so anyway, how do you extend that this is though? my very successful book yeah it's it's a classic well, i've book. extended almost everything <laughs> four books about it uh, i've extended it to, to things like you know it's true in academia for example it's been proven beyond doubt i mean very boring perhaps but there are certain books which have been read or sold copies over the course of hundreds of years in some cases, like Shakespeare and, and all the rest of it. And if you look at the academic um, things that are mentioned in academic papers uh, and you actually tally them all up, it's, it's incredibly true that, that sort of, you know, some about 1% of musicians or 1% of uh, authors or 1% of scientists get 80%, 90%, 99% of the credit. So in other words, most of the people who've ever worked in music, let's take classical music, for example, 80% of all classical music that is performed comes from Beethoven, Bach, um, uh, Tchaikovsky, and who was the fourth one? I can't remember who the fourth one was, but basically Beethoven. So basically 80% of all performing comes from four um, uh, uh, composers. And those composers, obviously in the history of the world, you know, how many composers have there been of, of at least reasonable yeah. quality classical music? You know, you, you couldn't count them. And so, you know, it's quite interesting. I mean, it's also, you know, it's not necessarily a good thing, but it's quite interesting that that, pattern prevails. And then you mentioned Bezos and, and Musk, and we might mention Steve Jobs and other people who've been fantastically successful making enormous amount of money and there are investors like Warren Buffett who made enormous, enormous amount of money. Well, you just think about the asymmetry of that, that you know, you've got a tiny, tiny proportion of the number of people who actually collar quite a huge amount of wealth. And if you're a socialist, you just say, well, that's bad and we should change it. But the interesting thing is it happened under communism as well. And so, you know, you, you actually, it's kind of like a law of nature that, that uh, equality is not liked in the natural world. Um, and if you look at species over time, you know, there are, you know, probably 1% of, of all uh, species are still extent and the rest are extinct and so you know it's sort of something that happens over time this sort of sorting mechanism 
which means the rich get richer, the more successful get more successful, and things that are things that work get more and more resources. Now, sometimes that's a very good thing, like science, for example. You know, science is, uh, you know, if you look at the amount of money that's been spent on science, broadly defined, and technology over time, it's gone up enormously over time. Um, and that's because science actually works and very, very successful, very, very wonderful and all the rest of it. With other things like viruses, for example, they've also grown fantastically over time. <laughs> and um, again, it's a very small number of viruses that will cause 80% of deaths. Uh, it's just a universal phenomenon. And once you start thinking 80-20, you see all sorts of things around you. Which are um, which you never noticed before, which are the asymmetries in life, where a relatively small cause can have huge results. Well, apply it to your own life, Tom. You know what small thing that you do or other people do could be enormously important in terms of generating whatever it is you want, whether it's becoming a billionaire or whether it's writing the most fantastic music or or whatever. You know, and I'll try and identify the few things that really work, because most things don't. Most things are a complete waste of time, which is why we've got a lot of time, because we waste it, because most things don't matter. Yeah, I've, well, I've, I've tried to apply it. <laughs> I've tried to apply it in many different ways to my to my own life, but it, you know, it's it's very difficult. And part of me wants to take the uh, the less than twenty percent. Uh, well, currently it's zero percent, but it used to be about 20% of the time that I spent uh, getting pissed and smoking and make that 80%. Uh, and uh, sadly, when I, when I attempted to reverse that ratio, that didn't turn out, out too well for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is something, uh, music's always quite related to, um, yeah, uh, to certain substances and to certain uh, ways of behaving, which are not necessarily mainstream, so yeah. I don't really know what to make of that. <laughs> <laughs> I've got one final question for you, Richard, which is that are you currently in Portugal or are you based out of Portugal? I actually, my main official home is in Gibraltar, but I spend a lot of time in Portugal and I spend a lot of time in South Africa, in Cape Town. And now I spend an increasing amount of time in Australia as well. Oh, well, and how, how come Portugal? I've got a vested interest there because my mum's Portuguese. I'm half Portuguese and uh, I go there all the time. So I was just oh, really? how come you... Well, you fantastic. Well, I just love it so much. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there couldn't be a better place to have a lockdown because, you know, the weather's quite nice. The people are very friendly. The food's very good. And, yeah, people are relaxed. I love Portugal. I think it's just just fantastic place. I think it's much, much nicer than Spain. Uh, uh, you know, and also one of the things about Portugal is that it has little country lanes that you don't get in Spain, for example, but they're very much like England. But there are lots of very, very small villages in Portugal, you'll know. You know, there are big cities, but there, but there are lots of, of tiny little hamlets. You know, you, you get a, a group of you know, about 20 people and sometimes they're called you know, this is the particular name for them. There are signposts to to uh, Butok, which is the local one here. It's got about, I don't know, 100 people in it. But everyone knows where Butok is if you're anywhere near Tavira, which is in the eastern Algarve. And uh, what that means is that there are roads connecting these little villages. 
which means that there are lots of country lanes if you like to go walking uh, or I like cycling a lot. And so every day I go cycling and this time of year, most of the year, all the trees are full of oranges. So I stop halfway around. And then of course, you've got these oranges overhanging the road, of course, which I then have a little snack on. And in the sunshine, even today, the last few days, it's been wonderfully sunny. It gets cold at night, cold and first thing in the morning. But it's a wonderful, wonderful country. I love it. It's not yeah. grand. You know, you don't get masses and masses of very grand mountains, but everywhere it's very pretty. And there's a lot yeah. of coastline relative to where the country is. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, come to Portugal. It's wonderful. But you can't at the moment. <laughs> but when you can, do come to Portugal. Oh, no, I will. Where are you from originally or your mother from? She's from, she's from Lisbon. Okay. Well, Lisbon. in Lisbon, um, but it's probably where I'll I'll probably end up in Portugal when I get married and stuff. Um, I I, I want to buy a plot of land and build a house there. Yeah, uh, I think it's going to be a good place to settle down. I love I love Portugal. Um, you, you're yeah, you're clearly a man of taste, Richard. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Greatest Music of All Time <laughs> podcast, and uh, well, I would encourage all my listeners to go out and check out your book. <laughs> principal, I'm sorry, I've got to do unreasonable success. And check out Matt Grimsdale and his music.